0: We just sang in number 75 in our hymnal. Oh, Father, you are sovereign in the second verse, the third line, all chance and change transcending. It means he's above and over any possibility of chance or change. He's immutable. Now, mutable means that you can mutate. Or change. And immutable means no change. Visible means you can be seen. Invisible means you can't be seen. He's supreme in time and space. Omnipresent. Eternal. Just we want to be thinking about the words that we sing. The next line of that second verse. You hold your trusting children secure in your embrace. Uh, I'm going to use it a little differently than the author intended it there. And I want you to think about this fact, and I want, just give me a moment to refer to some of you that might be a little fearful or worried. The greatest event in your life that far transcends death is your conception, gestation, delivery, and survival. How much did your worries and fears and thoughts about it contribute to its success? None. Death is nothing but your spirit leaving your body and going to a different place. That's all it is. Let alone a body being formed and a spirit being formed and put into it. Now I'm going to assume that you already have figured that out. That you have great trust in God for something far greater than death. Because I've noticed that you all keep on having children. So you must believe that God is able to take care of that. And so I encourage you to think about the fact that death is just a redeemed soul, a regenerated spirit moving to a different place. So the Bible calls death a departure, I am ready to depart. To be with the Lord is to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord and far better. And that's the way we should think about it. Right, brother? And that's the way the children of God should think about it. And I want to just, I'm trying my best to think of whatever I can to help you realize you have put your trust in God in taking a human body, and starting that from nothing, basically, and a human spirit, and putting it together for your children. He did that for you already. And he took care of you when you were his enemy by nature, and he changed your nature and gave you a new spirit. He doesn't have to do anything like that to get you to heaven. All he has to do is say, Spirit, come home. Right. And your spirit's going to leave your body. Your body's going to go to sleep. That's what it's called in the Bible. And your spirit's going to be with the, in the presence of the Lord. Yes. Let's put our trust in him, Amen. and let's build our trust in him and our faith in him. The last point that I made before our break was from Acts chapter 20 and verse 28, that God, the immortal one, the one who cannot die, died in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ so that we would not have to die in the same way. Our sins are paid for. We shall be forever with the Lord. Let's think about his immensity or his omnipresence. When we use a word like omnipresence, omni means all presence means Presence. It's, he's there. And so when he's all present or all there, he's everywhere at all times, no matter the circumstances. God is omnipresent. Look at Jeremiah chapter 23 where the Bible tells us this about him. And we want to know this about our God. You know, let the Muslims make their their pilgrimage to Mecca to kiss the black stone. The, the meteorite that fell from heaven. Right. Our God is everywhere. We don't have to get down on our knees and face Mecca. That's where they're bowing on their little magic carpet rides in order to try to get to their moon god, Allah. In Solomon's day, Solomon built that glorious temple where there were the cherubim over the Ark of the Covenant, and the prayer that he used to dedicate that temple was whenever we're in need, if we pray toward this house. Right. And so Daniel, a long time after Solomon, when Daniel was in Babylon, he flung open his windows and he would kneel down and pray toward Jerusalem, even though it was leveled and there was no temple there, because God had said, this is my spot. And they rebuilt the temple on that same spot. But see, we don't have anything like that. And God wasn't limited to, to the to two cherubim over the ark. That was just the focal point of their worship. The focal point of our worship is that God's in heaven. He's in this church. Here's where he habitates by the Holy Spirit according to the last three verses of Ephesians chapter 2. We want to know that our God is everywhere because he appeals to that fact. Jeremiah 23 and verse 23. Am I a God at hand, saith the Lord, and not a God afar off? Can any hide himself in secret places that I shall not see him, saith the Lord? Do not I fill heaven and earth, saith the Lord. Now, saith the Lord is in there three times because he wants you to know something about him. He's omnipresent. He's always present everywhere, anywhere, at all times, no matter what circumstances. He fills heaven and earth. He's immense. This is his immensity in that he fills the universe and no matter how much we discover about the greater size of the universe, he fills it. Given his immensity, what kind of a temple could possibly contain him? None. No temple could contain him. Look at what uh, Solomon said as he dedicated that magnificent temple in 1 Kings chapter 8. He said in the 27th verse, But will God indeed dwell on the earth? This is in his great prayer of dedication, will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, the heaven and heaven of heavens cannot contain thee, how much less this house that I have builded? And it was quite a building. At great cost, very creative design given by God. The blueprint was given by God to David. David gave it to Solomon. It was built according to its design. But notice Solomon understood something about it. And we want to recognize that, that God dwells everywhere. The heaven of heavens can't contain him, let alone some facility on earth. The earth is my footstool, says the great God of heaven. Isn't that nice? I had thought a couple of times that I was going to bring a little footstool and just set it up here because the visual aid might be beneficial for all of you to look at a footstool and realize that this globe that's 8,000 miles in Diameter and 24,000 miles in circumference is his footstool. This earth that men want to make so great and talk about Mother Earth and wanting to protect all of its natural resources and so forth and not take dominion over it and use it like he told us to is his footstool. And we glorify him for it. He is not a god afar off. He is very near to every one of us, Paul told even the philosophers in Athens. Look at John chapter 3. John chapter 3. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere all the time. He's in your room in the dark. He's with you in your vehicle. He's with you in a serious interview. Wherever you might be, God is there. You should realize he is seeing what you're doing, whether it's evil or good. If you're a child of God, then the evil is only going to result in your chastening, not in your final judgment. When God chastens us, it's proof that we will not be condemned with the world. First Corinthians 11 is so wonderful about that, that even though the chastening had gone so far at Corinth that it was taking their lives, that was the evidence that they would not be condemned with the world. We always want to recognize that, because that's what the Lord and this Word teaches us. John chapter 3 and verse 13. Now, if you're using any other version, it's not going to work, because th- this phrase is not there. John 3.13, no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven. So who are we speaking of here? Jesus is speaking of himself. Even the son of man, which is in heaven. Now I thought Jesus was sitting here speaking to Nicodemus. No man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven. So that means he's not in heaven. He came down from heaven. He's talking to Nicodemus. Even the Son of Man which is in heaven, not shall be in heaven after I'm glorified and ascend, but he is in heaven. And so that's too difficult for modern translations of the Bible, so they just get rid of it. It's not in the ESV that we had mentioned just a few minutes ago. Because this is the omnipresence of God, and the Lord Jesus Christ was God in the flesh. He was in heaven, and he was on earth at the same time. In his human body? No, he was on earth. But remember, there was more to the Lord Jesus Christ than just his human body. That's why I could say of him that he created the worlds. Not his human body, or not the man, Jesus of Nazareth, but the word of God. By him were all things made, and without him was not anything made that was made. Just a little interesting verse, that when you're reading through the scripture, slow down enough that you don't miss some of these little precious jewels, because there's Nicodemus. Now that... Nicodemus got overwhelmed by this conversation. He took the he had the courage to come and meet with Jesus by night. And that was still courageous, though he did it at night, because he wasn't yet ready to be thrown out of the synagogue of the Jews. Remember, Nicodemus also came and begged the body of Jesus and buried him along with Joseph of Arimathea. That's right. But this man came to Jesus by night, and Jesus hit him with some things that he had never heard in his seminary degree, about being born again, and then about how this man was identifying himself as the son of God and Nicodemus already tended toward that or believed it fully and he's saying I'm with you, I came down from heaven so that I'm not in heaven yet I'm in heaven and that's only by an omnipresent God let's go back to Psalm 139 that we looked at last Lord's Day but we'll just shorten the number of verses we see here And focus on this aspect of God that he wants us to know about him. That the heaven of heavens can't contain him. That don't you know I fill heaven and earth? Am I a God afar off or am I a God at hand? Is there a popular song today that says, God is watching us from a distance. God is not watching us from a distance. God is at hand. Those are babbling idiots that sing that kind of junk and call it music or lyrics, let alone Christian lyrics. God is not at a distance watching us. That's some sort of deistic philosophy that God created everything, wound it up, and it's just operating. And he's got his hands removed. He's sitting back and seeing what we're going to do with his creation. God is intimately involved in everything we do. And the Bible speaks of that from cover to cover, including our formation according to his book in our mother's womb. But we just want verses 7 through 10 of 139. David puts it this way. Whither, that is where, shall I go from thy spirit? Or whither shall I flee from thy presence? If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. That's the grave. You say it's going to be so lonely down there. When they drop me six feet under, it's going to be so lonely. It's going to be cold. It's going to be damp. Thou art there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, like New Zealand, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. Isn't that wonderful? That's the omnipresence of God. He's everywhere and he's divisible. One of the aspects of his relational ability toward us is he's divisible, that let's say there were three of us, and one said, I'm going to heaven, the other said, I'm going to be laid in hell, and the other, to the othermost parts of the sea, have we created a trifold dilemma for the God of heaven? No way. Okay. Isn't that wonderful about him? Amen. He's divisible. Not really, because he fills heaven and earth, but I'm trying to help you understand it. He can be with all of us, though we're going in different directions, and you know, as soon as we say amen, we are going to go in different directions, and he's going to be with all of us. Because he's omnipresent. He's immense. He fills heaven and earth. How can this be practically valuable for us? You are never alone. No matter how lonely you may feel or think. And those are vain measures of whether you're alone or not. Feeling and thinking. You say, well, if I feel alone, ain't I alone? No, you're not. If I think I'm alone, am I alone? No, you're still not alone. You're doing two ridiculous measures of your existence and your loneliness. And that is thinking or feeling about them. But at sometimes you feel lonely. That means by faith you need to reach out and realize God is with you. Right then, right there. Full capacity. He's not hindered because he's away from heaven. He's in earth. He's in the grave. He's in heaven. He's in the uttermost parts of the sea. The sunrise and the sunset sets in rises or sets in either of them, and in both places, it's a joy to behold it, as we saw in Psalm 65 earlier today. So you're never alone. I have feelings too. Sometimes we can feel lonely. But I want to exhort you and me, believe by faith the doctrine of omnipresence or His immensity, because God is there. You can't get away from Him. So when he makes his promise that I will never leave thee nor forsake thee, does it depend on your location or your feelings or your thoughts? No, no, and no. It has nothing to do with any of them. It's just that you are making it difficult for yourself. You're not making it difficult for him because he's with you anyway, even though you've forgotten that he's with you because you're thinking about your lonely feelings, you're feeling your lonely thoughts, and so you're assuming you're alone when God has said I will never leave thee nor forsake thee and he hasn't because he's immense, he's omnipresent and he is with you. His immensity is so unique. He can be in heaven, he can be with you and he can be in you. Look at John 14:17. Much more could be said about his omnipresence. Thou, God, seest me. There's poor Hagar out there in the middle of nowhere. She's lost, and the Lord was with her, saw her, talked to her, comforted her, gave her promises, and sent her back home. John fourteen seventeen. even the spirit of truth. Now let's get back to 16 so we get the whole sentence. And I will pray the Father, and he shall give you another comforter. That he may abide with you forever. Is this true that we have a comforter that abides with us forever? To abide someplace is to dwell there on a permanent basis. To abide. It means to remain. I will pray the Father and he shall give you another comforter that he may abide with you forever. Even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it seeth him not, neither knoweth him. But ye know him, for he dwelleth with you, and shall be in you. So this Holy Spirit from heaven dwells with believers, dwells in believers. It's quite a unique omnipresence. Because he's God, and he wants us to know that about him. You know, not only is he immense, filling heaven and earth, he is invincible. Meaning he's omnipotent. When we say invincibility. He can't be overthrown. He can't be defeated. He's almighty. When we say omnipotent, it's the opposite of impotent. Potent is power. Potentate is a powerful one. Impotent is no power. Omnipotence is all power. Look at First Timothy chapter 1 with me. That introductory text we've used to several of these attributes because it has several of them listed in it. First Timothy one. I want chapter six this time. First Timothy chapter six, which in his times he shall show who is the blessed and only potentate, Amen. the powerful one, the potentate. Not potentates, plural. He is the blessed and only. He's the only one like him. Potentate. A powerful one, full of power because he's omnipotent. Is the way that we consider it. God is known for his great power. Look at Psalm 21 with me. He wants us to know about his power. Oh, and you know how long we could go on the power of God or his omnipotence? How long would we take in Genesis 1? with his creation of all that he did in six days, how long would we take in chapter 2, chapter 3? Each chapter is full of God's omnipotence. It's everywhere. And so I mentioned to you that the blog already has 175 verses that you women have contributed toward the attribute of omnipotence. Psalm 21 and verse 13. Be thou exalted, Lord, in thine own strength, so will we sing and praise thy power. God should be exalted and praised and worshipped for His strength, His almighty strength. We should sing of it and praise Him for His power. So we take a few minutes to be reminded that He is the blessed and only potentate. Right. He is the only powerful one. And so it makes me disgusting when we have those little red-headed, red-headed Muslim-like shriners that march in our streets and have their parades in honoring with their scimitars and crescent moons the origin of their faith and activities, the Muslims, referring to themselves as, have you ever heard, read their titles or seen their titles anywhere? Oh, yeah. The potentate, or the one and only potentate, or the supreme potentate. No, the, the, uh, a, a shriner is no more the supreme potentate, then the Pope of Rome is the only blessed and holy father. That's right. It's blasphemy to talk that way. Amen. And those organizations, no matter how noble they make their so-called efforts at raising money for children, it doesn't, that doesn't mean a thing to God. Right. Are you kidding me? That doesn't mean a thing to God. Because when we go in the Bible and there are people actually worshiping God with the very ordinances that he gave them, if their hearts are not right, those things don't mean anything to God. And says he considers them the stinking dung of your assemblies. Don't ever be moved by that kind of stuff. All that matters is what's right here. Could there, would there, might there, is it possible that there might be a sincere Shriner that is doing it out of love to God and the Lord Jesus Christ? If we could construct it mathematically, possibly. If they feared God and loved the Lord Jesus Christ, what are they going around calling each other mighty potentate for? Why are they wearing a sword and a crescent moon and a hat of the Muslims? I don't want to get off on that subject. We want to be here with the power of God. Look at 62 and 11. It was read to us last Lord's Day. Psalm 62 and verse 11. God hath spoken once, twice have I heard this, that power belongeth unto God. Look at 68, verses 34 and 35. Ascribe ye. He wants us to talk about it and to give God the credit for it. That's what it means to ascribe something. Ascribe ye strength unto God. So I have to have this point. It's not a have to for me. I love his invincibility or his omnipotence, and we could spend a great deal of time on it, but notice that God wants us to talk about it and to ascribe to him strength. Ascribe ye strength unto God. His excellency is over Israel, and his strength is in the clouds. When the rain began falling torrentially last night, I was telling Sherry, this is the great rain that we've been reading about in Job, not the small rain. It's the great rain. Do you know how many billions of, millions of pounds are dropping? It only takes one gallon of water for eight pounds. And when you're thinking about a county that has 800 square miles, and Jeff, I'll leave the rest of the calculations to your notes. There's a lot of water dropped in a county the size of Greenville. You know, there's been some places that have been getting inches of rain, and you take an inch and multiply it by 000, I mean, 800 square miles, just one county gets an enormous amount of water. Anyway, that's just one way. There's so many other demonstrations of God's strength that is in the clouds. Oh God, thou art terrible out of thy holy places. But my brethren, he's not terrible to his children. Right. Eric explained it very well this morning that he's terrible to their enemies, and they get to see it. He's terrible in nature in the demonstrations of his power, but it's not against us, it's for us. The God of Israel is he that giveth strength and power unto his people. How terrible is that? That he gives you strength and power. Blessed be God. Listen, when you read something like that, you ought to say amen. You ought to say, blessed be God. O God, thou art terrible. We want to ascribe to him power like it tells us to do you know what tells us that the natural creation is sufficient in Romans 1 that the whole world is without excuse because they are able to know these two things about God. Do you remember what they are? Romans 1. So they are without excuse. His eternal power and His Godhead. They know that there is a being that matches up with their definition of the word God. A supreme, supernatural being. They know there is one, and they know he has eternal power, meaning that his power does not only extend to time, but extends beyond it, and it puts fear in them. But instead of worshiping and serving the Creator, they worship and serve the creature, and they make images to make peace with a God that is not the true God. He's invincible. Look at Genesis chapter 18. I like the way some of these places talk and speak about our Lord. An omnipotent being who's got all power can say a certain thing that we can never say. An omnipotent being, a being that has all power, can say, there is nothing too hard for me. Do you know how many things we get faced with and we just quickly... Well, I'm not even going to try that. I can't do it. It's too hard for me. Never the Lord. And you, he likes to say it this way. Look at, look at Genesis 18, 14. Sarah laughed that uh, I'm a little too old to have pleasure. You know, I'm a little too old for Abraham and me to get together and have it work well and be fun like it used to be and have a baby and nurse a baby. Here's how the Lord responds. The first sentence of verse 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Amen. Do, those, do you like those words? Yes. The only way that it can happen that you get discouraged and fearful and worried is from one standpoint, a serious standpoint, you think something's too hard for the Lord. Whether it's the conversion of a family member, and that is one serious project. Whether it's the healing of your physical body, And it could be even when they say there's nothing else we can do. When you haven't conceived, and you don't think you can conceive, and based on all the evidence you have, conception's impossible, all these different things, is anything too hard for the Lord? No. The answer is no. And his answer to Sarah's laughter is a resounding no. At the time appointed, I will return unto thee, According to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. Is anything too hard for the Lord? No, it isn't. Look at Jeremiah 32. I know we're turning lots of pages, but I'm glad you have the pages to turn. I'm glad the Lord's given us His Word. We have it in our hands, in our language, preserved and kept, made so easy to find places. It's got chapter divisions. It's got verse divisions. Jeremiah 32 and verse 17. Ah, Lord God! Behold, thou hast made the heaven and the earth by thy great power and stretched out arm, and there is nothing too hard for thee. Amen. That is how we should believe. That is how we should worship and pray. Ah, Lord God! Does it have an exclamation point? Well, that's why I read it the way I do. Ah, Lord God, behold, thou hast made the heaven and the earth by thy great power and and stretched out arm, and there is nothing too hard for thee. Verse 27, same chapter. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? So here's Jeremiah and the Lord going back and forth. He's omnipotent. He's invincible. He has unlimited strength. He has the power and the ability to do anything at any time with infinite ease. Just think about all the way we, how we should describe omnipotent. All powerful isn't good enough. He can do anything or everything, no matter the circumstances, with infinite ease. Because He's our God. No one can question or restrain Him. He doeth according to His will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand. When he reaches out, his stretched out arm, verse 17 of this chapter you're looking at, when he stretches out his arm to reach, to save, to to hit, to blow, to strike, none can restrain it. None can hold it back. They can't even question it. This is what the Bible says about him. Look at Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40. There's a lot of stars. Some of them are still showing dippers and hunters and bows and arrows that our fathers in the faith have watched for 6,000 years. How is that possible? Aren't they just floating around up there? How can a sailor in the past without GPS or anything get out in the middle of the Atlantic or the Pacific or the Indian and find their way to a desired haven? Because the stars are held in place. Right. Verse 26 of Isaiah 40. This is the Lord speaking. Amen. Lift up your eyes on high. Just those words. Lift up your eyes on high. Get them off the horizontal plane of this world and get them up where you can see something impressive. Lift up your eyes on high. And behold, who hath created these things? That bringeth out their host by number. He's got them all numbered. He's got a certain number of stars and he puts them out there. He calleth them all by names, by the greatness of his might. For that he is strong in power, not one faileth. Look at those words. This is the Lord speaking. This is what he wants us to know about his power. Let's delight in his power. But you know what you have to do? Lift up your eyes on high. What angle are they at when you're watching television? How much power are you seeing? Do you have your eyes lifted up on high when you're watching some stupid piece of television? How about getting out and seeing the stars? And if you live farther away from streetlights, invite me over. I get sick of streetlights. Will they help keep us safe? Not really. I'm kept safe with the power of this God. I wish I could see the stars more. You go to a planetarium, and you see the stars, and it causes you to reflect, and it's supposed to. Lift up your eyes on high, and behold, who hath created? Look, and consider who has created these things, that bringeth out their host, and there is a large number of them, by number, because he's got them numbered, and he knows every one of them. He calls them all by names, by the greatness of his might, and that he is strong in power, not one faileth. I've read it again because it's verses like this that the Bible is full of, that we should take great delight in his power. He is able, according to the testimony of the Apostle Paul, to do exceeding more than you can even ask or think. And now we're talking about some real accomplishments in Ephesians chapter 3. And that's not helping you get a better house or a bigger car. That is you being filled with all the fullness of God. That is the immediate context of that verse. Consider the Son... The sun's pretty big. It's pretty impressive. How close can our Apollos get to it? Not very. They're worried about little solar flare-ups, that it might mess up our radio transmissions on earth. They're always worried about that sun. It's 93 million miles away. Who created the light that it gives? Let there be light. And there was light. Four days later, he created the sun when he created that son, he can also stop it like he did in the days of Joshua. He can also back it up like he did in the days of Hezekiah. And he can turn it out like he did in the days of his son, Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Right. Give him glory. Let's rejoice in him. Amen. And we could chase him and his glory of his omnipotence throughout the pages of Scripture. Who can make iron to swim? Did an axe head ever fall into a river? And a man was was grief stricken because he didn't know how he was going to repay the lost axe head? Did Elisha throw a stick in and it swam? And on and on we could go. There's so much comfort in God's power. You know, I've preached messages before and I hope it brings back memories. What a word is this? Those are scriptural words from Luke about the Lord Jesus Christ and the power of his word, the dominion of God, and how God rules over the hearts of men. The, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord as the rivers of water. He turneth it whithersoever he will. Right. Why is God called king of kings? Because a king is a potentate, but when there is an almighty potentate, he is a king of that king. Right. That king owes him homage because he is greater and higher than they all. How about famous last words? Even God couldn't sink this ship. Who is the Lord that I should fear him? And other statements like that, the Lord has shown that he is greater in power and might than all of them. Every source of help, every source of strength that you have is limited. But not God, your loving Heavenly Father. You have unlimited power through your Heavenly Father. Don't ever be with Sarah and laugh when someone says, this is going to happen or this could happen. Is anything too hard for the Lord? No, it is not. It doesn't matter whether it's a job. It doesn't matter whether it's health. It doesn't matter whether it's your family, finances, or whatever. Because God is involved, anything is easily possible. That little lunch, the apostles were so worked up. Feed this crowd, Jesus said to his apostles. And they're, just out of, they're going through the calculations. Whoever had their iPhone with them pull it out and turned it into a calculator. And we're saying, we're going to need such and such amount of money to go into town and hire the trucks to bring the food back out here to feed this multitude. And Jesus said, what do you have? And they bring him this little tiny lunch. And Jesus lifts up his eyes to heaven and blesses it. And they, you know, as, as children, we should hear these stories often. I heard them often, and I'm thankful. They fed the 5,000 men and the 5,000 women and the 10,000 children, and they were all full, and they sent baskets through the rows, and there were 12 baskets full left over when an omnipotent God gets done. You say, well, what does that have to do with me? Well, I remind him of that on a regular basis, that all I have is a little lunch for you, and would he please multiply it? And every father in here knows that what he does is far short of perfection. He can ask the Lord to multiply his efforts. And on and on we can go. Enemies may seem to have great strength, but God your father is infinitely greater. When Abraham found out that Lot had been taken captive by four kings from Mesopotamia, what did he do? He took his 318 household servants, and God was with him, and he a great victory, and recovered everything, and defeated them, and took their spoil. Because the Lord was with them. David took Goliath on, because he knew with the Lord on his side, Goliath was nothing. Nebuchadnezzar thought that he was quite a king, and he was. But the Lord humbled him, for sure. How about the martyrs? Can you imagine having the full authority of the largest Christian church on earth, with the power of life and death over you, taking you by the civil arm. That means the king and his standing armies takes you into custody. They rape and kill your wife. They then sell your children as slaves. They burn your house to the ground. They burn your books. They turn your friends against you by the threat of the same thing happening to them so that they, they all deny you. They throw you out of the standing church. You are left alone in the world. Did the Lord take care of them? They sang hymns of praise. Right. Because God was with them. And if you say to me, where was his power? Ha <laughs> ha They got to leave this stinking place and go straight into the presence of God. And everybody was shouldered aside by angels. Get out of their way. Who do you think you are? Come on. Come with me, right up to the altar in the throne of God. This is your place right here. Yes. And they said, Lord, how long do we have to wait? And he said, don't worry. You don't have to wait too long because I'm going to extract every drop of blood in vengeance upon them. But we've got to get the rest of your brethren here first. It's in Revelation 6, verses 9 through 11. Right. That's, the all, that's the power of God. But you know, that would be shaky. We've, what's, the big, what's the worst thing that's happened to you? Transmission went on in a vehicle. Rogers got 104 temperature. What's the worst thing that happens to us? The light turns red and I wanted it to stay green another three seconds. This is power. And it supported martyrs because they had faith in it and they trusted it. Your needs may seem insurmountable at times, and the Lord will bring trials to where you'll be tried by your faith in His omnipotence, but God can solve the situations easily. Do no more than your reasonable best in anything God's given you to do. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. If you've got a test to take, a course to accomplish, an interview to, to manage, just do your reasonable best and trust the Lord for the rest. Go to bed and don't worry about it. Because this great God says, I'll do it. I want you, my beloved, to sleep. Do you believe those verses? Every week of my life, without fail, I trust them, and tell him, and remind him. So I'm going to quote them to you again. Except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. Except the Lord keep the city, the watchman waketh but in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early to stay up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. For so he giveth his beloved sleep. You are his beloved, go to bed. Make a reasonable effort. Sometimes that reasonable effort will be more than other reasonable efforts, depending on the circumstances you're in, but still only make a reasonable effort and trust him for the rest. Because it's his power that's at stake. Look at Psalm 138. Psalm 138, in verse 3. In the day when I cried, thou answerest me. You're hopeless. You're weak. You don't know what to do. You're powerless. In the day when I cried, thou answeredest me and strengthenest me with strength in my soul. God is able to do that. When you feel that you are at wit's end and unable to go on, if you will cry unto the Lord... He will strengthen you with strength in your soul. The example that's coming to my mind right now looking at this is David at Ziklag. He was exhausted. They crested a hill after having come three days' journey. They were frustrated and tired, and they crested a hill, and the village where they had left their wives and children was burned to the ground, and they were all taken captive by the Amalekites. And David's friends... Turned and were going to stone David for having been away from home because he was the one that kept them traveling at times and they lost their wives and children. Now, who did he have left at that moment? Were his wives there to help him? Was Abigail there to, to whisper sweet nothings into his ear? No one was there. Were his children there? His friends wanted to stone him. What does the Bible say he did? First Samuel chapter 30. He encouraged himself in the Lord. Just like this. In the day when I cried, thou answerest me, and strengthenest me with strength in my soul. Wait upon the Lord, and he shall strengthen thine heart. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Listen to this. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 11. Colossians 1.11. This was Paul's prayer for this church. Strengthened with all might. According to his glorious power, unto all patience and long suffering with joyfulness. How can you suffer with joy? How can you suffer for a long time with joy? Patience doesn't bring me joy. Waiting doesn't help me with joy. But this verse tells me that I can, with all patience and long suffering, be joyful. And how does it happen? Because I am strengthened with all might according to his glorious power. I have a whole string of verses which I'm tithing to you about God's strength in your soul. Psalm 130, 147. Psalm 147. I just have to share this with you before we leave. Omnipotence. I didn't say before we left the building. I don't see a fire. Psalm 147, the Olympics finished a couple of weeks ago, and there was was a lot of power, and there was a lot of speed, and there was a lot of skill, and there was a lot of strength. Insane bolt from Jamaica won the 100 and the 200-meter sprints for the second Olympics in a row. And his arrogant mouth which the Lord should silence, except he's long-suffering, and he will silence it. Proclaiming himself a legend was one of the main features. And a swimmer named Phelps from our country. And a great Mayasa tribe runner from Kenya. And a great 5,000 and 10,000 meter double by a naturalized British citizen. There were heroes of strength and power and speed. And yet the Lord wants you to know this. In verse 10 of Psalm 147, while millions or a billion or two by mass production of video and audio were delighted in these legs of a man And in some equestrian events, the strength of the horse, notice what the Bible says. That God doesn't delight in the strength of the horse. He taketh not pleasure in the legs of a man. The fact that Usain Bolt was able to beat his countrymen by just a few hundredths of a second proves that he really is quite ordinary. But the Lord doesn't care about any of them. Because he made the difference to begin with And the difference is so insignificant, it's not like we have a superhuman. We don't have one at all. It's just a little tiny grade of speed. Just three weeks earlier in the Jamaican Olympic trials, Johan Blake beat him in both distances. And he's three years younger. He's just a kid. What's wrong? But anyway, it's the legs of a man. Our God doesn't delight in the strength of the horse. And horses are strong. And they're beautiful in their strength and their running. God doesn't take pleasure in the legs of a man. And this is the verse I want you to have. The Lord taketh pleasure in them that fear Him. In those that hope in His mercy. So I'm calling for an Olympics of the Church of Greenville. We're going to have some contests. Two, as a matter of fact. Two contests. Who fears the Lord the most in this assembly because the Lord takes pleasure in them? And who hopes in his mercy the most? May the best man or woman or child win. Because the Lord takes pleasure. The world takes pleasure. in oh, Do you know what Usain Bolt's going to look like in 40 years? Do you know what 40 years will do to him? The little hose right here, if he makes it that long, it'll be skin draped over bone. I love that passage right there. Yeah. And so whenever you see all the emphasis being put on athletics or sports or strength in our country, just remember that there's a verse in the Bible that deals with that God doesn't take pleasure in the legs of a man. He takes pleasure in those that fear him. The God of heaven basically has the angel. Do the angels cheer in heaven and do they rejoice when one sinner repents? Because of the fear of God, they repent of their sins and they want to serve the Lord and they hope in His mercy. Is a repenting sinner someone hoping in His mercy? Right. The cheers go up in heaven, and that's the cloud of witnesses that we want to live our live in front of and we want to run our race before. God is immutable, it means He can't change. He's absolutely and perfectly resistant to any change. Now, what if we had looked at these nine attributes that are incommunicable of God and found out that he changed that'd be horrible God's perfection precludes that means it excludes that means it rejects change because if God ever changes then he's either changing from perfection or he's changing to perfection which means in either case he wasn't perfect or isn't perfect are you with me God can't change he's infinite in his perfections and so he never changes that is glorious He's unchangeable. He's immutable. Mutable means that you can change. Mutate, change. And immutable means you can't do that. Look at Psalm 90 in verse 2. And I I quoted it in the earlier assembly for a different sense and a different attribute. And that's one of the wonderful things about God's Word. Sometimes these statements can be applied in different ways. Psalm 90 in verse 2, "...before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world." Even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. As God, he doesn't change from everlasting to the present to everlasting in the future. He is God. Look at Psalm 102, a few pages over. Psalm 102, verse 12, says it briefly. But thou, O Lord, shalt endure forever, and thy remembrance unto all generations but verses 25 through 27 say it better. 102, 25. Of old hast thou laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of thy hands. They shall perish. You know, we look at the earth, the its foundation, and the heavens, and nothing changes. If anything's going to last, it's the foundations of the earth, and it's the heavens. They shall perish, verse 26 tells us, but thou shalt endure. Yea, all of them shall wax old like a garment. As a vesture shalt thou change them, and they shall be changed. But thou art the same, and thy years shall have no end. You are not only eternal, but in that eternal aspect of your nature, there is no change or variation in you. Even though the things we consider the most stable will be changed, and praise His name, He's going to change the heavens and the earth. He's going to fold them up like an old garment and give us a new one, and we're going to be enjoying it for eternity. That's Psalm 102. And that's quoted in Hebrews chapter 1. In Hebrews 13, it says, Jesus Christ, the same yesterday and today and forever. Now, Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature, so it's not referring to His human body or nature it's referring to his divine nature. The God part of our Lord Jesus Christ never changed. God's unchangeableness is so certain, there is not even a shadow. shadow of turning with him. Is there a shadow of turning with me? Is there a bigger shadow of turning with you that just nodded your heads yes about me? Yes, there's shadows of turning with us. We change. Oh, we change. I don't know what kind of a mood I'm going to be in five minutes from now. That's a lot of change, and that's a speedy change. And you don't know three minutes from now before you get haughty about me. I want us all together in this matter that we change, and we change a lot. Our bodies change. Our mental abilities change. Our memories change. Our moods change. He never changes. He's always faithful. His promises are sure. His power is everlasting. He's always there for us, and there is no change in Him. The Bible says, I am not like a man. I never repent. Look at Numbers 23 and verse 19. Here's how it reads. Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that He should lie, neither the Son of Man that He should repent. Hath He said, and shall He not do it? Or hath He spoken? And shall he not make it good? Men get themselves in troubles either because they overcommit, they lie, they exaggerate, or circumstances change. And so all of a sudden, someone counting on us, we've decided we're not going to perform quite that way. Either we lied, circumstances changed, we overcommitted, and so we change. But God doesn't change because God is not like us. I love a verse like this. God is not a man that he should lie. So when he has said something, he's always going to come through with it. Neither the son of man that he should repent and change his mind. Hath he said and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken and shall he not make it good? Yes and yes. When God says something, he's going to do it. When he promises, he's going to perform it. That's the God we trust in. Thank you, Lord. Job would say he's in one mind. And whatsoever he's purposed to do, he'll do it in Job 23. And his counsel stands forever in Psalm 33. God doesn't change, and on that unchangeableness of God, Malachi 3, 6 says, Therefore ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. On the faithfulness of God, he had made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that of their seed, there would be a lasting seed forever. I change not. And so they still existed to that day. The gifts and callings of God are without repentance. God never purposes to save and then decides not to save. God never starts saving and doesn't finish the job. And God never saves and then undoes his salvation. They're without change. And he that cannot lie promised before the world began that he is immutable, unchangeable, always telling the truth. Look at Hebrews 6. I'm about to close. Hebrews 6. These are ten incommunicable attributes of God. This tenth one that we're on is his immutability, meaning he's unchangeable. He's entirely honest, faithful, and true to everything that he says. In Hebrews chapter 6, this is for those who feel, feel, and think that they're kind of floating, and they're not sure, and they don't have an anchor for their feelings and their thoughts. There is an anchor And the anchor is something God gave so that we wouldn't be tossed to and fro with doubts about him. And this is the issue of the promises of eternal life. And they were first given to Abraham in the clearest manner in the Bible. Verse 13, For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself, saying, Surely, blessing, I will bless thee, and multiplying, I will multiply thee. And so, after he, that is Abraham, had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. And it goes on to describe oaths for men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife. Verse 17, wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise, the immutability, there's that word, the immutability of his counsel confirmed it by an oath that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope Set before us which hope we have as an anchor of the soul and it goes on to describe this glorious hope This is our salvation. These are the promises of God These were all your melancholies need to find rest for your souls find your refuge here find your anchor here Don't be afraid. Don't worry put your trust in the Lord He's he's done all that he can possibly do and he says I did two immutable things for you I made a promise to abraham I made a promise He promised eternal life before the world began, Titus 1-2. But in case you didn't think his promise was good enough to give you refuge and an anchor for your soul, he confirmed it with an oath. He took an oath in the matter. You know, if you have two men and they're striving uh, about a matter, and one says, well, this is the way it is, and this man says, this is the way it is, see, we've got a promise. I promise you this is the way it is. But then... A judge in a court can say, left hand on the good book, right hand raised, and you take an oath. And we expect that with such an oath, the strife between these two men, the disagreement, the argument is ended. Right. Because one of them has taken oath before Almighty God. That's how we do it in our courts. But since God, there was no one to swear by greater than God, so he swore by himself. And he wants you to know that I gave you two immutable things that when I make a promise, it should be good enough. But in case it wasn't, and I want you to understand that our God is pitiful. He brings up another one, I swore with an oath. Whatever promise you have in the Bible, you can count on it absolutely, infinitely, eternally, that God always keeps his promises. No matter when you see attitudes change or moods change or affections change in men, attitudes, moods, and affections don't change with God. They're absolutely sure. And they've been made sure by the Lord Jesus Christ. This is our God. He is infinite. And he's invisible. And he's immutable. And he's omnipresent. And he's immense. And he is unchangeable. We can put our trust in him, and I hope you will. But more than put our trust in him, let's lift our eyes up. Let's behold who's done all these wondrous things. And let's fear him, and let's hope in his mercy, because he takes pleasure. Remember, commencing with this assembly, the Church of Greenville Olympics have begun. And let's just try ourselves, by our fear of the Lord and by hoping in his mercy, He takes pleasure in that, and it's of such greater consequence than the legs of a man or the strength of a horse. May the Lord Jesus Christ and may God our Father be praised.